Welcome to the Data for Betterment podcast, Reimagine Hybrid Work, with your host, Maribel Lopez. Maribel is the founder of the Data for Betterment Foundation and Lopez Research. The Data for Betterment Foundation is a nonprofit organization that helps individuals understand and prepare for how their career will change as companies embrace new technologies. Lopez Research, a market research and strategy consulting firm, helps companies understand how technologies such as connected devices, collaboration, cloud computing, and AI change the customer and employee experience. The firm's clients range from startups to global corporations, including 10 of the Fortune 30. She's also the author of the highly regarded business book on how those technologies are transforming the company, employee, and customer experience, Right Time Experiences, published by Wiley. She's also a frequent public speaker at corporate events and contributor at Forbes.com. Maribel is currently researching and writing her next book on how to build successful strategies for workplace transformation. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello. Uh, welcome to the AI series of Reimagine Hybrid Work. I know many of you might be wondering why we have an AI series in this podcast. And it is because I believe that as we advance our strategies, artificial intelligence is going to be extremely important to that. And in order to do that, we're going to need to have some strategies within the organization for certain roles on data, uh, AI, uh, next generation analytics. And that's the purpose of this series. So as you can see, I've interviewed several people on this. The one that we're going to be listening to today is Kirk Bourne. Now, he is a very interesting person that I've known for quite some time at several different roles, but I've always really admired his ability to really work with data. And when we did this podcast, he was a data science fellow uh, and executive advisor at Booz Allen Hamilton. He is now the chief science officer at Data Prime Inc., but the data is just as relevant as when we recorded it. So I hope you'll enjoy this podcast. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back to the podcast. I am so excited to be here today with Kirk Bourne. He is the principal data scientist and executive advisor at Booz Allen Hamilton. And that's not Booz with an E, that's Booz with just a Z. So we're super excited to be here. Uh, For me, I've actually been looking at topics like IoT, machine learning, artificial intelligence for a while now. I've actually run into Kirk at many industry events. We've had the opportunity to share beverages, talk about life in the technology world, and it's nice to be able to have a podcast with him in this oh-so-interesting time. Kirk, welcome to the show. Could you tell the audience a little bit about what is a principal data scientist? What do you do? (laughs) Well, well, thank you, Maribel. It's great to be here. So I get this question about principal data scientists, and I I, I sort of questioned that when I was uh, offered the job at Booz Allen. So my background, a little bit, very briefly, uh, is astrophysics. So I got a PhD in astrophysics from Caltech many, many years ago. And after that, I spent uh, 20 years working at NASA on astronomy and space science data systems for NASA space science missions. So I would tell people my night job was data as an astronomer. My day job was data uh, doing these data systems. So I did that for 20 years. It was during those 20 years that uh, we're always working with data that I moved far beyond data analysis, which is what I learned as a scientist, to data mining, 
data science, machine learning. So I, I left NASA after 20 years, taught uh, data science at George Mason University as a professor of astrophysics. So I didn't teach any astrophysics, <laughs> even though that was my, is my uh, official career as an astrophysicist. But I taught data science courses there. And then Booz Allen gave me a call about five or six years ago and gave me an offer I couldn't refuse. And so when they described principal data scientists to me, I wasn't exactly sure what they were describing because I knew all about chief data scientists. Five or six years ago, you know, we had a, the United States had a, a, a chief data scientist. Many companies were hiring chief data scientists. And uh, when I looked at sort of the, the roster sheets of some of these companies, and chief data scientists were sort of the top top dog. You know? <laughs> and so I, I, I wasn't seeking a title per se, but I just sort of wondered well, where's principal with respect to chief and uh, the way they made it out to me is they said, well, we have many chief data scientists at Booz Allen Hound. Uh, the chief data scientists basically oversee different accounts. Okay, so it might be a cybersecurity account or it might be a healthcare account or it might be some kind of, uh, you know, like a defense intelligence account or something like this. But the principal data scientist is a one and only. Uh, and so they, they, they had my attention right there. So we're creating a single one and only position for a principal data scientist, which they offered to me. And so I'm sort of the cross-cutting guy. Okay, so that means I get to talk about, interact with across all these different accounts. But included in that is the things that we are doing right now, which some people call thought leadership. That sounds kind of scary to me. <laughs> my, my company calls me the data science luminary. That's also kind of scary to me. I, I just say I'm the, I'm the uh, uh, mascot for the team, right? We have these incredible data scientists. We have over 2,000 data scientists. Uh, we're very we're approaching 5,000 now, so I don't actually know. Somewhere between 2,000 and 5,000. I, I don't know where that number is. We are, are getting 5,000. But I'm, uh, but, uh, and we're working on all these different accounts. So I, uh, I do the podcasts like this. I speak at conferences. I do a lot of writing. I'm very active on social media. People can find me on Twitter at Kirk D. Bourne. If you're not there following me now, please do that, or otherwise I'm just going to hang up. <laughs> no, but so anyway, so I so I get to play in this field in any in any place uh, that sort of fits, right? So whether it's in cybersecurity or healthcare or defense or uh, edge computing, IoT, machine learning, deep learning, computer vision, uh, I can play in that space, and that's that's my job. I love it. So literally, I'm somewhere between you know astrophysicist, rocket scientist, data scientist. They're all combining in this wonderful thing that we know as Kirk. So what I'd like to start with is you've obviously been in the space a, a long time. You've seen a lot of change in this industry. And I'm wondering, when you talk to people about artificial intelligence today, what are the big trends that people should be looking at? Well, first of all, I think uh, just uh, sort of semantically, I think we've moved beyond sort of the, the concept of artificial intelligence. Again, it's artificial in that it's not a natural biological inter intelligence. So I understand the use of that word. But I, I say it's there's nothing artificial about it. Uh, so we've really moved to really augmenting. I, in fact, I have my seven A's of artificial intelligence, aug you know, augmented, assisted, amplified, accelerated, actionable. So, so, so I say it's all about those things. It's about augmenting the human intelligence, assisting and amplifying the, the human in the loop, sort of amplifying your outcomes, make, getting action from data, which is really what an intelligence does, right? I mean, as human beings or, or any animal in the world, we have sensors, ears, eyes, smell. We have all these sensors which give us information about what's happening around us, and then we make decisions and act in response to those inputs. 
So it's just a natural thing to respond to data inputs. And so we're finally realizing the full value of all these da data we've been collecting for, for years, right? So I worked for many years at NASA collecting data, working with data. And then it was right around 1997 where the, the lid blew off for me. <laughs> so that was 23 years ago where we were managing data sets for NASA. 50, we, we were managing at one point in this data center where I was working. Like it was a digital library of 15,000 different experimental data sets from NASA mission. Now, these, most of these were small little experiments bolted onto some satellite or bolted onto the space shuttle. You know, they weren't like big things, but, but some of them were really big, like the Hubble telescope, which I worked on for 20 years. And in 1997, we got this new single experiment data set offered to us, which by itself was twice the size of the other 15,000 combined. <laughs> and so it was, it was like, what, one experiment on top of 15,000? And it doubled, essentially required us to triple the capacity of the data center for this one additional experiment. So anyway, so uh, every, I, I, I said, what can you do with all this? And that's when I sort of discovered machine learning and all this cool stuff where we, that's what we're doing nowadays. About and That was 20-something years ago. And but as, as I looked around, I realized businesses were collecting tons of data. Government was collecting tons of data. Sports teams were collecting tons of data. Nonprofits were collecting tons of data. And the, the focus was on the data, 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 and, and hence... A, we got into this term called big data, which was like all about the hype. I mean, I would go to conferences and probably you did too uh, several years ago where people would brag about how much data they had, right? My data is bigger than your data. And I would get up there and talk about some little spreadsheet uh, <laughs> that I was working on. And they said, well, that's not big data. And I said, yeah, but it's got 30 columns and 3,000 rows. And if I studied all possible combinations of those 30 columns, it would take me 1 trillion lifetimes of the universe to analyze all that data. On a single spreadsheet, I could write down by hand. So, so the point was discovering value and insights and action from data. It's not about the data. It's about the outcomes. And I think that's where we're finally realizing the full value of our data. And AI is helping us get there because without the AI, we can't manage this data flood in the same way that our human brains can literally with trillions of uh, neurals, uh, nodes in our brain, uh, we can manage all the inputs and navigate our world safely. And we're getting to that point with our AI. I'm actually really excited about this concept because I've spoken to a lot of organizations and one of the things they always were considering is, do I have enough data to start with AI, right? And I think you've actually just pointed out that it's not necessarily about the size of data. It's also about the types of data that you have. So you could start with a smaller data set. You could start with a larger data set. The, the real thing that you are focusing on or should be focusing on is what is the outcome I'm trying to achieve? And that leads you to what types of data you need, how much data you need. And I think we started a lot of AI in this concept of, well, I'm just going to, you know, throw some data into some model and we're going to find some insight and see what we find, right? I believe now people are much more directed about what they're trying to do. And I think that's been a wonderful advancement in the industry. But you're obviously talking to a lot of people. Are there specific challenges that you see kind of come up time and time again when they're talking about AI? Well, there's a variety of challenges at, at, at different levels. I mean, there's technological challenges, cultural challenges. I mean, the cultural having to do with people being on board with this, uh, people fear for their jobs. And we can go into a long discussion about future of work and how every industrial revolution has ha been a change in the types of work that people do. You know, uh, more jobs are going to be created than lost. But yes, jobs will be lost. Just like at the first industrial revolution over 250 years ago, the advent of the steam engine 200 years ago, whatever, the 99% uh, uh, of the U.S. workforce was farmers. 
that's not true anymore. <laughs> at, at every industrial revolution, steam engine, electrical power, uh, the computer generation, and now the AI generation, uh, there's been a dramatic increase in new types of jobs and uh, jobs changing. So there's a cultural challenge, but there's also the technological challenge, one of which is technical debt. Uh, people don't often talk about that, but there's a tremendous amount of investment in sort of, uh, you know, sort of the the canonical systems that you normally want, like your IT systems for HR and for finance. And so those things are big legacy things that are hard to move beyond because of the investment that's been made by the company, right? So they keep dragging it around, so to speak, in in the budget every year. So you got to get past those sort of those technical challenges. Uh, but there's also just the data challenge. Like we, we were just talking about, it's not about big data, it's about the right data. And so I guess one of the big events or big sort of concepts now in, in AI is, is get the right data to the AI to produce the right outcome. And so, so the challenge is, 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 is again, around the, knowing what the right data is. What do we mean by the right data? Making sure we can collect it. Uh, and there's also sort of that cultural data technology synergy challenge, which is breaking down the silos. All right. So there's all kinds of data stored in different parts of an organization, customer data, finance data, sales data, projection data, marketing data, HR data. And if we don't break down those silos, we can't really get the full picture, the 360 view of whatever the thing is that we're trying to make a decision on. That is get the right data in the right at the right place at the right time requires you to know, well, what data do I have? So that's both a cultural thing, breaking down the silos. It's also a technological thing, and it's also a data thing. So, so with all these challenges sort of like are cumbersome for sure, uh, but I see a lot more organizations saying to hell with all the challenges. We need to move forward or we're going to fall behind. Our business is going to die if we don't get on board with this AI and uh, data-inspired innovation revolution that's happening. So I think one of the things that has happened over the course of several years now as we were talking a lot about the chip technologies. We had CPUs, GPUs, NPUs. Uh, we also had a move from a talk on machine learning to deep learning. And I think there's some confusion about like how advanced technology needs in order for me to get value out of it. Do you feel uh, that we're at the point today where if you're not, say, doing deep learning, you can still get valuable insights with AI and CPUs and other things? Like, how do we think about it? Like, is, is now a good time? Are we ready? Do we have enough technology to get started? Yeah, I believe we do, yes. Uh, so think about deep learning. I mean, I mean two, two of the major applications of deep learning are image understanding and language understanding. So you think about computer vision. So, so deep learning is really great uh, for computer vision, uh, di- you know, pre- uh, classifying things in an image like a self-driving car or maybe a cancer diagnosis, a medical image. Okay, so there's lots of details and sort of hidden patterns and deep patterns in any kind of scene. And so image understanding is a good application for deep learning. Likewise, language understanding. Okay, so understanding sentiment, emotion, the semantic meaning, how to generate narratives. So if you're familiar with GPT-3, it's this incredible uh, narrative autocomplete uh, that's hit the world by storm this year, right? So everyone's kind of afraid because it can generate fake articles that humans can't tell that, that are fake. It's kind of scary. But and, and the good news, so to speak, in terms of that is that after a few paragraphs, it sort of loses its train of thought. So it can actually say something at the beginning of, of the article like, 
A is B, and then later on it might say A is not B. Okay, so you can actually realize after you look through enough paragraphs that it's, it's just making nice, complete sentences and complete paragraphs, but not all self-consistent. So anyway, so beyond those things which have deep layers of meaning and deep layers of patterns, images and text, uh, we don't need necessarily need deep learning for every single thing. I mean, so 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 building a recommender engine, or just or, or, or taking an action in terms of an automated machine and a machine shop or a factory or even a, at the thermostat in your home or or basically a, a, a recommended uh, route to take when you're traveling. Those don't necessarily need deep learning. I mean, they, they, they need some kind of logic and data, and that's not necessarily deep learning. I think a lot of organizations have been intimidated thinking they need really advanced uh, algorithms, uh, new types of models, uh, the latest and greatest technology to get started. And I think there's a spectrum of problems. And as a result of that, there's a spectrum of technologies that you can use towards it. So I'm excited to see people kind of get in and and start dipping their toes and, and trying to make uh, things happen, you know, solving some of the basic problems first. So I, I think we're really every technology vendor I speak to right now is trying to infuse some level of t- of intelligence into their application services products. And I think that's wonderful for the industry. You, you've obviously followed this, participated in it a while. What excites you about the industry right now? Well, one of my uh, most favorite topics these days is around the internet of things, because for, for multiple reasons. One is it's more data. And I, I do love data. I mean, okay. So even though I talk about the importance of small data and right data. So IOT gives us sensors on many different things. So it gives us that greater view of our business, of our market, of our, of whatever is going on. So, so we talk about the 360 view and that is if the more sensors we have, the more eyes on the, on the target, the you know, sort of the more diverse perspectives we have on anything as a human being or as a machine, the more diverse perspectives we have, the better decisions we can make. So the IoT, I, I like to call the Internet of Context, because what se- those sensors can do sometimes is give you sort of the contextual inter- information in the environment of maybe something that you're that you're paying attention to. You might be paying attention to a customer or an employee or a process in your business or an engine in your machine shop or, or, or an airplane engine or an effect. So the thing that you're paying attention to is one thing, but all the environmental factors in, in which that that environment in which that thing is operating and acting and responding to inputs uh, is those factors. How do you, how do you measure that? Well, IOT gives us essentially that, that contextual data. So it's not just that this engine failed, but it, it failed when it was in a hot environment or this customer bought this thing, not because they always want to buy this thing, but they just happened to be on vacation at a particular location. Like they bought, you know, swimwear at a beach and they bought ski wear skiing at, when they were tr- vacation in the mountains. So the environmental factors are just as important, not more important, to sort of what's going on in building that predictive model. So context is everything, just like like we as humans. If I'm driving a car down the street, I mean, I need all the contextual information, not just what's happening right in front of my car. I need to know what's happening on the side, what's happening down further down the road, uh, knowledge that I, I know about human behavior. So if I see a child playing with a ball way down the street, they may not yet be in the street. But I know that the likelihood that they may end up in the street is important enough for me to slow down to prepare in case something happens, like the ball bounces in front of my car. So we as humans already take in contextual data all the time. So IoT gives us that contextual data as well as direct sensor data on things that we're measuring. And so 
around this whole context of IoT and that edge computing environment is something that's really I've seen a lot of this year. So it's, I, I consider it a hot trend personally. And this is uh, this thing called observability. And so I'm on the observability bandwagon now. <laughs> okay, so observability is like monitoring. Okay, we've had monitoring for a long, long time, monitoring IT systems and monitoring all kinds of things. But I tell people monitoring is what you do. Observability is why you do it. Okay, so observability is a strategy. What do we need to observe? How often do we need to measure it? Why are we measuring it? What are the outcomes we expect? What how, how will we use it to make better decisions? So that's why you do it. So observability it should be a strategy discussion you know, in enterprises. Now, okay, yeah, we can put sensors on everything and collect trillions of bytes, but why? What's the point? Okay, why are we doing this? So, so I, I'm all on. I'm all about strategy now. I mean, not just because I work for a strategy consulting company, but but I, I would I, I just I just think everything that we do is a, should be a, first to answer the why question. Why are we doing this? All right. So there's the uh, sort of this uh, the state of data story uh, framework. I always tell my data scientist colleagues like you got to tell tell the data story in a human way so that people can understand what do we mean by machine learning and data science. Tell it in the human terms. And so there's three questions you should answer. What, the what, the so what, and the now what. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? And why should, you know, why should I care? And then, then what, what comes next? I mean, you know, what, what, what do we do, do with it? All right. So the what, the so what, and the now what questions need to be answered. And so observability has to be like that. That is, we're collecting data from sensors everywhere, but why? Where should we do it? How often should we collect it? Why are we doing it? How are we going to use it? And, then, and and that includes all the regulatory and compliance and privacy issues around the collection of the data. So so the discussion has to be more than, yeah, we can collect lots of data, but more focused on the why of it. So, so observability is why we're collecting data. Monitoring is the action of collecting data. I think you've really hit on a challenge that people have had in the Internet of Things market for some time. I believe we spent probably over a decade just focusing on connecting things and getting that data somewhere. But the connecting of the data in of itself didn't really give you anything. So now you're talking about the observability, the why you're connecting the data, the what are you trying to do as a result of it. I think that that is the missing link that people are starting to really focus on now, which will change and create IoT practices that actually lead to value. Now, you've you've obviously mentioned a whole train, you know, the what and the why, uh, getting to that as part of the best practices. So from observability to what now? Are there other sort of low-hanging fruits or pitfalls to avoid that you would give as advice to organizations as they go down this path? Well, I think we've already hit on one of my other favorite topics, which is the uh, we, we we have hit on this, which is focus on outcomes first. And uh, it, it's this sort of like s- struck me at one point a few years ago. I was at a conference, and uh, this was during the sort of the hype cycle of big data, right? Everyone's bragging about how much data they had, and uh, sort of after the sort of the third speaker got up and spoke and said, "We're you know we are a data driven company or a data first company." Uh, and it hit me just completely wrong. And I, and I finally put my finger on why I, j- I just felt awkward about it. Because again, you're focusing on the input, not on the outcomes. And so my analogy is like a car, right? So you put fuel in your car to get somewhere. 
So, so, so it's either about the destination or it's about the journey, but it's not about the fuel. Okay. <laughs> it's either where you're going, which might be a destination, or if you just want to go for a nice drive in the country on a Sunday afternoon, it's, it's about the journey, but it's not about the fuel. You need the fuel. You need it. I'm not saying you don't need it. It's a necessity. But the discussion should not be around data first. It should be around outcomes first. And what are the outcomes? These are the analytics. People say, what's the difference between machine learning and analytics and in AI and data science? And that is, I give, I give people definitions that are my own. Uh, some people uh, argue with me, but I, use, I try to use my own definitions consistently. Machine learning is mathematics. Okay. It's mathematics that finds patterns in data. All right. Data science is the scientific process that we apply to data to to find the most meaningful patterns to predict something like build predictive modeling or whatever. So it's it's the iterative, repetitive process, experimental process to improve the model based on the data. The AI is the sort of the actionable part of that when you you build an autonomous system like a robot or an an automatic recommender engine. And the analytics are the outcomes like predictive analytics, health analytics, cybersecurity analytics. So I always tell people, you want to, if you want to be something first or something driven, don't be data first or data driven. Be out analytics driven or analytics first. What is it you're trying to accomplish? What is your mission? And so, so I lived 20 years in NASA and, and learned all about system engineering, which I never learned in graduate school in astrophysics. <laughs> I learned about Einstein and all kinds of other cool stuff. But system engineering is, is you, you start with what are the requirements, the, the user requirements, the system requirements, the design requirements to build and then build the right thing. But a friend of mine then introduced me to this concept of mission engineering. It's really about what's the most successful thing to achieve is the success of the mission, not just the system. And so I said, explain that to me. And he said, well, he used to work, he was, he's an older guy. He worked on the Apollo, the NASA Apollo mission, the moon landing missions. And he said, every one of those components had a systems engineering part to it, like the launch vehicle, the lunar lander, the command module, you know, the parachute system. And he said, but the important thing was the mission. The mission was not a success. And and mission success was defined by getting those astronauts back home to their families safely. That was the mission. All right. There are systems that will get you to the moon, land you on the moon, get you off the moon, get you back home, et cetera, get you on that ship safely, et cetera. But the mission, the ultimate mission success is defined. Did we get those astronauts back home safe to their family? So mission engineering is that you, you take a step back and say, what is my organization's North Star? What is our mission? What is our mission? What are we trying to do? Then we, then we work back from there. So what are the outcomes that we need to achieve to reach that mission? What data and models do we need to help us get there? So what kind of fuel do we need to put in my car in order to go visit grandma for Thanksgiving? Okay, so so we think about the outcome first, and then we back up to say, what do we need to get there? And that's what I encourage people to think about now. It's more about mission and outcomes, and then get down to sort of the technical details of how you get there. Kirk, thank you so much for some fabulous definitions, uh, easy to understand description of what some of the challenges and opportunities are in the space. And it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And I hope we get to go again soon. So thank you. Well, thank you, Mary Bell. I love being here with you. And let's do it again soon. Cheers. Ciao. (laughs) 